You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at just three verses this morning, but before we jump into our study, let me offer you a few key reminders about the Sermon on the Mount. First, we are calling this series The King and His Kingdom, joyfully acknowledging that Matthew presents Jesus Christ as the promised one, the great rescuer, and the true king. With the earthly ministry of Jesus, the kingdom of God was initiated, though we now wait for the time of consummation, when Christ returns in glory Second, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not declaring the way into the kingdom, but he is establishing the way of the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount does not outline the behavioral steps someone must take to get into the kingdom of God, but it does give us a roadmap. It gives a roadmap for believers who long to walk in obedience to King Jesus as a citizen of his heavenly kingdom while still stumbling through this pilgrim life. Friends, in short, the Sermon on the Mount lays before us the good life. Not the easy life, but the good life. But as you know already, if you've been here throughout this series, and you'll find out again this morning, this is not the good life as you will hear it described and see it portrayed in popular movies and best-selling books. But make no mistake, this is the good life as defined by Jesus. And the good life as defined by Jesus is one marked by seeing and savoring God. In verses 6 through 8, within the Beatitudes, I want you to see how our gaze is directed to see and savor our all-sufficient God. This will happen in at least three ways. First, we will be encouraged to see and savor the righteousness of God. Second, the mercy of God. And finally, the supremacy of God. First, seeing and savoring the righteousness of God. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Right out of the gate, let's clarify how Matthew is using the term righteousness. If you're familiar with your Bible, you might automatically assume that Matthew is using righteousness the same way the Apostle Paul uses it. Referring to the righteousness of Christ, which God credits to the believer's account, just as God credits the believer's sin to Jesus Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. While this is a staggering and, and wonderful truth, this is not what Matthew is talking about. In fact, listen Listen to how one commentator describes this. He writes, Righteousness here, and also in verses 10 and 20, 
means a pattern of life in conformity to God's will. A pattern of life in conformity to God's will. The person who hungers and thirsts after righteousness then, hungers and thirsts for conformity to God's will. He is not drifting aimlessly in a sea of empty religiosity. Rather, his whole being echoes the prayer of a certain saint from Scotland who cried, Oh God, make me just as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. Again, we see that Jesus is commending something that is already true of believers. Every genuine believer has experienced a Holy Spirit wrought hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's not a natural desire. But now Jesus calls his followers to an ongoing appetite for righteousness. You see, friends, it's not just that you want to know what is right or you want to be right, but you want your entire life to be conformed to what is right. The language of hungering and thirsting is no mistake here. Food and drink are essential for life. So when someone goes too long without eating or drinking, their appetite becomes all-consuming. In fact, in utter desperation, they know that ultimately, if they don't eat or drink, they will die. This is exactly the picture Matthew wants us to have. Someone who understands that that just like they cannot go on living without food and drink, so it is with righteousness. I simply can't get along without knowing God's will more fully and living in conformity to it. I'm convinced that this is the way to true happiness. I need this. I long for this. I can't live without it. Now, let me offer you a couple of brief observations before we move to verse seven. First, a question, and this is not, this is not a difficult question, but I do want you to think about the answer. Ready? When are you not hungry? When are you not hungry? And let's just assume that you know, 15-year-old guys don't answer this question because the answer is uh, never always hungry. But the answer for most people is this, when you're full. You're not hungry when you're full. What do parents like to tell their children when they ask for a snack, especially if it's something like candy or a cookie or, or cake or some dessert? They, they say something like this, just wait. I don't want you to spoil your dinner. In other words, if you fill up on cookies or candy now, you won't be hungry later. Friends, there's a very important truth here. In order to hunger and thirst for righteousness, your spiritual belly can't be full of the junk food of the world. Too many Christians have become temporally satisfied with something less than the righteous joy that God desires for them. 
The author of Hebrews illustrates this when he writes of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You see, even God's word acknowledges the reality of the pleasure of sin. But what does it say? The pleasure of sin is fleeting. It's cheap. It doesn't last. It's like juicy fruit gum. It's amazing for exactly 13 seconds. And then it's like you're chewing on a piece of rubber. Right? That's sin. It promises what it cannot deliver. And if you're not careful, you can begin hungering and thirsting for these things because you hear the promises. I'll make you full. I'll satisfy you. Second observation. Know that this longing for righteousness is really a longing for God's word. This longing for righteousness is really a longing for God's word. Many times we've looked together at 2 Timothy chapter 3 where Paul writes to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in what? Righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If you want to know God's way of salvation, look in his word. If you want to know his plan for spiritual growth, look in his word. And if you want to be equipped for lifelong service to God, look in his word. Friends, you simply cannot know God's will apart from his word. You'll never be conformed to God's will apart from his word. So this hunger for righteousness is a hunger for the word of God. Final observation before moving on. Notice, notice that the one who is hungry will be filled. God will not turn away the one who comes to him hungry and thirsty. What did we sing earlier? Come all ye pining, hungry, poor, the Savior's bounty taste Behold, a never-failing store for every willing guest. Friends, this is the good life, isn't it? The one who is hungry and thirsty for unrighteousness will never be filled or satisfied. What a contrast. According to Jesus, his followers are marked by mourning and meekness and hunger. None of those things are valued by the world. But what does Jesus promise here? Those who mourn 
will be comforted. Those who are meek will reign. Those who are hungry will be satisfied. This is the good life, according to Jesus. A second main point, this text directs us to see and savor the mercy of God. Seeing and savoring the mercy of God. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, at first glance, this is a statement that seems to immediately make sense, but perhaps is at odds with how we understand Scripture. If, if you're one who shows mercy, you might think when reading this verse, if you're one who shows mercy, then you will receive mercy. It, it almost sounds like karma, doesn't it? Do good and good things will happen to you. In fact, if you listen closely, this is the general life philosophy you'll hear a lot of morally upright people espouse. They might say something like this. You know, I try to do good and I just hope someday it will pay off. The thought to some degree is that you'll get what you deserve in the end and if you are merciful enough to others, God will have to be merciful to you. In other words, you'll earn God's acceptance through your good works. You might be tempted to read this verse that way, but that would be wrong. As many of you already know, that way of thinking is opposite of what the gospel actually teaches, isn't it? The gospel tells us that you don't get good because you did enough good. Rather, you were given infinite good while you were happily and actively despising good. Romans chapter five, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians chapter two, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. Oh, what scripture teaches is grace, which is so much better than karma. Now, what is Jesus teaching here? One commentator writes, mercy embraces both forgiveness for the guilty and compassion for the suffering and needy. You see, those who belong to Christ's kingdom are going to extend forgiveness and mercy to those who are guilty and helpless. Why? Because of all people, the true child of God knows what it's like to be guilty and helpless and in that desperate state to receive mercy. Now here's where this verse comes into focus. I want you to listen carefully to this. Jesus can say that the one who shows mercy will receive mercy. So the one who shows mercy will receive mercy because only the one who has already received mercy will truly show mercy. Unless someone understands their own helplessness, unless they are, as the Sermon on the Mount 
describes, poor in spirit, they will not come to Christ empty-handed, pleading for mercy. And as we learned in verse 3, the kingdom is only inhabited by those who are poor in spirit and in desperate need of mercy. You see, everything that's been mentioned so far in verses 3 through 7, it all works together. In fact, listen to how D.A. Carson explains this. Kind of brings this point home. I am persuaded, Carson writes, I am persuaded that should the Spirit of God usher in another period of refreshing revival in the Western world, one of the earliest signs of it will be that admission of spiritual bankruptcy which finds its satisfaction in God and his righteousness and goes on to be richly merciful to others. You see, the Sermon on the Mount guarantees that if you show mercy, you will receive mercy because if you show mercy, you're showing it because you've already received it. And God, by his spirit, is making you, forming you, crafting you into a merciful person. Again, Brothers and sisters, in a world that is obsessed with power and influence, where people are used and abused and discarded, how badly, how badly do we need followers of Jesus who are marked by mercy? And this will only happen as we think deeply about the mercy we have received this is why we rehearse the gospel and we relentlessly focus on the cross. We become, we've said this before, we become what we behold. So let us together behold our merciful God so that we might become increasingly a people of mercy. This brings us to our third and final point this morning. This text directs our gaze to see and savor the supremacy of God. Seeing and savoring the supremacy of God. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes that this idea, pure in heart, means that we have an undivided love which regards God as our highest good and which is concerned only about loving God. To be pure in heart, in other words, means to keep the first and greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. To be pure in heart does not mean that someone is sinless, but that he or she understands and embraces and affirms the supremacy of God, that God alone is worthy of unrivaled devotion and unfeigned adoration. Jonathan Edwards expresses this idea powerfully. Listen to him. Many of you have heard this quote before. Edwards writes, the enjoyment of God is our proper aim. 
and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Now, brothers and sisters, what's the connection between being pure in heart and seeing God? If purity of heart is a prerequisite for seeing God, then then what if my affection for God wanes? What if my love becomes cold? Does this mean that God will hide himself from me? Will I be blind to see him? Does it mean that I'm not a true believer? Well, friends, there is, in fact, a very real experience of God's presence, his nearness and his grace that can be missed when one is drawn away and gives worshipful affection to someone or something other than God. We sing this. It's that line in the great hymn. It says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So we know this temptation, but let me me use scripture to explain scripture the best I can. A few years ago now, we studied through the book of James, and when we did this, we talked about the close connection between James and Jesus's teaching. Okay, James, the half-brother of Jesus, obviously influenced by Jesus. You see a lot of similarities between Jesus's own teaching and James. So I think there are a few texts in James that can help us understand what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5 and verse 8. So take your Bible and turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. I want you to look with me at verse 12. Again, you'll notice language very similar to that of Jesus. James 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Sounds like a beatitude, doesn't it? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Just like Jesus, James here connects two things. Right? Jesus says, or connects purity of heart and seeing God. James connects remaining steadfast with receiving the crown of life. James also gives us a vivid description of sin. It involves a luring away, an enticement. When sin is being chosen, you're not wholly devoted to God. You're, you are not single-minded in your love for God. In fact, you're like a husband with a wife and a girlfriend. 
That's actually the example James gives in chapter 4. Verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Instead of purity, James rightly uses the picture of adultery. But now look down at verse 6 of chapter 4. And notice how much Sermon on the Mount language you hear. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Notice that nearness with God is connected to cleansing and purity. So now, thinking about all this, let me attempt to connect it. Jesus is telling us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, the one who, motivated by grace and empowered by the Spirit, the one who has dealt with sin and pursues God in pure, not perfect, pure devotion, this person will see God. He will not hide himself. He will not run the other way. He will not, to use a football analogy, he will not stiff arm you. This one will experience a tangible sense of his nearness, his presence, and his love. Now, I know that some of you could share stories with us affirming the truth of this text that in some time or season of intense suffering and difficulty or struggle, you cried out to God and he met you in your time of deepest need. He brought comfort and peace and rest. In the language of this, we could say, you saw God impart now what you will see fully in the future. So I want to drive this point home a little bit more by by giving you an application in closing of verse 8. So let me apply verse 8 to battling sin. To be clear, the presence of sin and a failure to love God supremely cannot cause you to lose your salvation. And it does not necessarily mean that you're not a true believer. But the presence of sin and unfaithfulness can and will affect your experience of communion and fellowship with God. In his excellent and very helpful book called Battling Unbelief, John Piper offers this story as a means of illustrating what Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. He says that he came across, this is Piper, describing how he came across an article in Leadership Magazine in the fall of 1982. It was unsigned, but written by a preacher who for 10 years was in bondage to lust. This preacher tells the story of what finally released him. 
he ran across a book called What I Believe. In it, the author admitted how the plague of guilt had not freed him from lust. He concludes that there is one powerful reason to seek purity, the one Christ gave in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Listen to what this feeble and desperate pastor wrote. The thought hit me like a bell rung in a dark, silent hall. So far, none of the scary, negative arguments against lust had succeeded in keeping me from it. But here was a description of what I was missing by continuing to harbor lust. I was limiting my own intimacy with God. The love he offers is so transcendent and possessing that it requires our faculties to be purified and cleansed before we can possibly contain it. Could he, in fact, substitute another thirst and another hunger for the one I had never filled? Would living water somehow quench lust? That was the gamble of faith. Piper writes, it was not a gamble. It was not a gamble. You can't lose when you turn to God. In fact, Piper talks about discovering this in his own life, and the lesson he learned is absolutely right. Quote, the way to fight lust is to feed faith with the knowledge of an irresistibly and supremely glorious God. Now, you can adapt that statement. The way to fight lust, pride, discouragement, loneliness, anger, bitterness. You can fill in the blank a thousand different ways. In fact, we, we could just say this, the way to fight, the way to fight is to feed faith with the knowledge of an irresistibly and supremely glorious God. Friends, this is the good life. Right? The world says, hunger and thirst for this. It will satisfy you. This is the good life. Jesus says, no. No, no, this is not what I purchased you for. I purchased you for something better. So let me define for you what the truly good life is. Hunger and thirst for me. Hunger and thirst for my word. Be merciful. Be pure in heart. And you will see me. You will experience my closeness, my nearness, my intimacy. In your humility, come to me, and I will not turn away from you. Friends, this is the good life, a life marked by satisfaction, 
receiving mercy and seeing God. So if you're given that choice on this side, the pleasures of sin for a season, it'll be good. You'll enjoy it for a time. But here's what you lose. Your soul. On this side, here's a life marked by true satisfaction. You'll receive mercy. You will see God. This is the good life. Walk in this way. This is what Jesus is saying. Walk in this way. You are blessed and you will continue to experience blessing walking in this way. May it be true of all of us. Let's pray.